The following message is entitled, The Eternal Word, Part 5. This message was given during the morning service on October 2nd, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For those listening remotely, we're in the Gospel of John. The first Sunday of every month, I switch sermon series. This is a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John that I've entitled, Communion Credentials. The key verse that I have chosen out of the entire Gospel to represent the Gospel is verse 4. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We continue to look at the eternal word, Jesus Christ, in verses 1 and 2. The gospel starts off talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word. We know the word is the second person of the Trinity because of chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is not the Holy Spirit. The word is not the eternal father. There's an interplay in verses 1 and 2 concerning Christ, who is the eternal Logos. Logos is the Greek pronunciation of the word for word. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is series number one in the note sheet. Communion Credentials Series Number 1, The Wonder of Christ's Life Introduced. And the stage is set for Christ's introduction to humanity as the eternal God-man. To follow the outline in your note sheet, Roman numeral 1, the deity of Christ, verses 1 to 5. So let's continue down to verse 5 to finish off this first Roman numeral 1 section. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. As I've outlined this first series under Roman numeral 1, the deity of Christ, we're looking then at letter A underneath it, and we've seen three statements already in previous sermons concerning the beginning that the word, Jesus Christ in other words, was God. Statement number one that we see is in verse one. In the beginning was the word. And on the blank line to review, you can fill in under point number one. This is the eternality, eternality of the divine word. Beginning refers to the beginning of creation and he was already there. It does not say in that statement that he came into being. He was a statement of eternality. So he was already in existence and brought about the beginning of creation. Statement number two that we've seen, and the word was with God. Fill in the blank for review. This speaks to the eternal fellowship of the divine word. The eternal fellowship of the divine word. It says right there that the word was with God. So there God represents Specifically, the Father, by implication also the Spirit. But the word is in distinction from God. He is with God the Father. This is fellowship. Was, again, speaking to always in the past. 
The third statement, which I finished, but I rushed some of the complexities of it, so I'm going to slow it down, and I regret that last time. I'm going to repeat most of what I taught at the end of last Sunday's sermon to make sure this is clear. And the third statement is, and the word was God. Fill in the blank for review. This refers to the divine oneness of the word in the Godhead. Divine oneness of the word in the Godhead. Now, your English says, and the word was God. See that? End of verse 1. You all looking in John 1, 1. And the word was God. But the Greek doesn't read like that. Again, this is review, but I'm making it, trying to be more careful here and slow so you understand this. So uh, you've got four blank lines. On the first one, let's write down what the Greek says word for word. The Greek says this, halagas, and here it is, write it down, and God was the Word. And God was the Word. That's how the Greek reads, which raises the fundamental question, why would translators reverse that? And the Word was God. Now, again, you have the word was, which is eternal, imperfect, active, indicative. Imperfect in tense, voice, and mood. The tense in Greek, imperfect tense, means past tense, but continuous. So he always was God. The word always was God. Let's talk about this construction. This is where cults like Jehovah's Witnesses have abused this, as I mentioned last time. Let's understand this. John makes the declaration here with this third statement. I'm just focusing on statement number three. You have the English in your note sheet, and the word was God, and then you wrote down the reverse of that, which is the Greek, and God was the word. So JTA, John the Apostle, as opposed to JTB, John the Baptist, which I'll have to use those alliterations more thoroughly when we get to verses 6 and down, because you'll be confused about which John I'm talking about. I don't want to keep saying John the Apostle versus John the Baptist, so I'll be saying JTA, JTB, as long as I don't say uh, JPL. Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But anyways, that's not here. That's another epistle. <laughs> so anyways, JTA is making the declaration here in this third statement that the eternal Logos is not just some person who has a relationship with the Father, but actually is divinity himself. So when it says the word was with God in the middle of verse 1, God refers to the Trinity, the Father. And then when it says the word was God, it's saying the word is equal to the Father and the Spirit. Okay? This is a declaration that he is divinity himself. Equal in his divinity with the Father. The word was God. Not just with God now, but was. This makes him one with the Father. This is the pinnacle of this opening statement by JTA, and it's giving us our Savior's divine credentials. Perhaps there's no better declaration of the deity of Christ in all of the pages of Scripture as this statement right here. Now, there are two heretical translations of that phrase that are out there. Heretical means false. Of that phrase, and the word was God. We're just looking at that third phrase in verse 1, and the word was God. There's two, there are two heretical translations. Let's write them down. Number one, 
would be if you stated it as it is literally in the Greek. God was the word. That's heretical. See, how could that be heretical when that's what the Greek says literally? We'll get to that. God was the word. That's heretical. Okay, that is heretical. That's false. That's not how this reads. They say, how come? If it's literally God was the word, why would it be wrong to say that? Well, what you have here is grammatical emphasis. And here's why. Both the words God and word, or word and God, and we're just looking at the third statement, they're in a nominative case. That means they're subjects together. They are the singular subject. You know, you've got subject, verb, predicate in any simple sentence, right? The subject does the action affecting the predicate or the end of the sentence. But here you have God was the word, and both words are nominative. They're subjects. That makes it grammatically, they are synonymous. So what John is saying is God was the word, word is God. That's why translators reversed the order. Because word is the subject. How do we know that? In the beginning was the word and the word. So now they're keeping correct to the subject of verse 1. And the word was God because they are subject words. Now, if you take that first heretical statement, God was the word, that makes just God the subject. And it would read, God was the one who was the word. God is the father. That's heretical. What John and the Spirit are saying here, Christ is the word, not the father. The word and God are both the subject grammatically, Christ is God, God is Christ. The text is not saying God the Father is the Word or Christ is the Father. That's heretical. That's a misrepresentation of the grammar. If it did literally say God was the Word and it was meant to read like that, then you would not have both God and the Word in a nominative case. So this is not saying God is the Father. Or the Word is the Father. Okay, it is not saying that. It is not saying the Word is the Father. So that's heretical statement number one. We don't translate it as the Greek literally reads every time in the New Testament. Grammar affects translation. So it is proper to keep the subject as the Word equaling God. Are you clear on that one? Heretical statement number two that the Jehovah's Witnesses use is they translate this third statement as this. The word was a God. The word was a God. Now again, the word for God is theos, T-H-E-O-S in the Greek. The word for word is logos, L-O-G-O-S. There's an article in front of the word logos, but there's no article in front of the word theos. The Greek does not say, and a God was the word. 
where the God was a word. It doesn't say that. There's no article there in the Greek. It reads kai theos, not kai ha theos. There is no article. There is no A. So Jehovah's Witnesses insert what isn't there. Now, they claim, Jehovah's Witnesses do, that because the Greek drops the article before the word theos, or God, that makes him a sub-God. When the article is dropped, they say, that reduces this from full deity. If the article was there, they say, then it would be full deity. So they translate it correctly. They put the word word first in the New World Translation. They put the word word first. They say the word was, that they knew that was correct, but they don't like how it reads next, so they altered it, and the word was a God. So they'll say he contained divinity, but he was not fully like the Father. This is heresy. So again, they keep the order as it should be grammatically, putting the word word first, but then they alter the translation of God, adding an article that isn't in the Greek. And they say that God, without an article, makes him less than a God. But again, Greek grammar comes to our aid on this. When the predicate, when the predicate here in the Greek would be the word God. Okay, so let's be careful here. In the Greek, when it says God is the word, okay, the predicate is logos. But when it says here, when the predicate nominative for God, when the subject nominative God comes before a verb, it is not lowering the quality of the noun. It makes it definite. The God. Greek grammar comes to our aid in this. So when it says, and God was the word, God being first in the Greek, and there's no article in front of it, that doesn't lower the quality of the deity. It enhances it. Are you clear on that? There's no article before God. Jehovah's Witnesses say we need to add one in and lower the deity. Greek grammar says you don't add the A in there before God and you uplift the deity. And this is how it's used throughout Greek, secular Greek as well as the New Testament. Okay? Some examples. Look at verse 6. There came a man sent from God. The New World Translation doesn't put the A in there. But there is, no a, there is no A there, so why didn't they do it there? See that in verse 6? Came a man sent from God? No A there. So why didn't they add it in? Good question. Because they're shifting translation to meet their own heretical theology. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. No a there, preceding the verb believe. So correctly, the New American Standard translated it as fully God. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of no article, but of God. Again, consistent. This is the way Greek grammar is. Verse 18. No one has seen a God. There's no article, so we don't put it in at any time. 
expositor says this, to say that the absence of the article before the word God speaks of the non-absolute deity of the word is sheer folly. There are many places, he says, in this, Tenny says, in this gospel, where the anarthrous use of God appears. Anarthrous means no article appears. And not once is the implication that this is referring to just a God. So John the Apostle, back to verse 1, expressed Christ's deity grammatically correct. Even though he states in the Greek, God first, word second, in Greek, Koine Greek, that is obviously an emphasis to put word as the emphasis of the subject. And God is synonymous with the word. Both are subject in their declension or their grammatical structure. And the absence of the article expresses the character and quality of the divine logos. So that's what you can write down on the blank lines under number three. God has no article. It expresses his true quality and character as divine logos. God has no article. It should go second. Word is the subject. They need to be reversed. And since God has no article, before the verb was, in the literal Greek, it speaks to character and quality of divinity. Another Greek scholar, Kent, said, by placing God first in the clause in the Greek, John gave it an emphatic position. Word is God. And by employing it without an article, he stressed the qualitative sense of the noun God. Go to chapter 4. Same thing occurs. The anarthrous use of quality. Chapter 4, verse 24. Chapter 4, verse 24. It doesn't say in verse 24, a God is spirit. It says God. God is spirit. And spirit has no article. So that should be the quality use of the word spirit. That's a mistranslation of verse 24 then. It should be capitalized. They missed that one. You see that in verse 24? God is spirit. Pneuma, that's the Holy Spirit. Both God and spirit are in an arthrous use of the noun. Therefore, that affects the rest of verse 24. Those who worship him must worship him in what? Holy Spirit should be capitalized and truth. You need the spirit and you need truth. MacArthur and others come along and say spirit represents human nature, the spirit of man. That's ridiculous. God is human man's spirit? That doesn't make any sense. And we're to worship with our human minds and truth? No, we need the power of the spirit. That's the whole point. So the anarthrous use of this noun is even missed at times in such verses as John 4.24. Both God and Spirit are speaking to the quality of divinity. God is Holy Spirit. God is Spirit, non-corporeal. And that's how we worship. We worship through the unseen Spirit of God and through the truth of the Word of God.
So hopefully that cleared up things if you were a little confused last time, and if I've confused you more, then just come and see me. So looking at verse 1 to recap, statement number 3, the literal Greek reads, God was the word, but they're both subject in their grammar. Both word and God are nominative, means they're, this, they're supposed to be the subject. Since both words are subject, which one comes first then? Again, the context of how the sentence is written. Word is the subject of verse 1. So the translators reverse them correctly. The emphasis is on word. Word is God. And always was God. Secondly, word has an article in front of it. The word, Christ, was fully God. You say, well, wait a minute. If the noun before the verb is does not have an article or has an article, that speaks to less deity. And look at the word as before the word was. No, remember they're reversed in the Greek. So God comes before the verb. Since God comes before the verb and has no article, that speaks to character and quality. Extremely important. Why did the Holy Spirit do it this way? Obviously, to emphasize the subject is the word, Jesus Christ. And to make it emphatic that he was God, because in the Greek it is God, word. Emphatically pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. This is a powerful testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. This brings us to our next fourth statement. Statement number four in your note sheet. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. Fill in the green line under the two blank lines. Eternal unity with the Father. Eternal unity with the Father. He was. All the wases in verses 1 and 2 are imperfect. Past time reference always in the back. He was always in the beginning. The word was always with God, verse 1. The word always was God. And now verse 2, he was always in the beginning with God. This is continuous. The word was is continuous. All the way into eternity past. Now, verse 2 seems to be a repetition. And it is. He was in the beginning with God. Well, look at the first statement of verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And in verse 2, it repeats that. He was in the beginning. And then look at the rest of verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And look at verse 1, and the word was with God. Do you notice that verse 2 is a combining of your first two statements out of the four? The first statement is, in the beginning, verse 1, was the word in your note sheet. That's eternality. The second statement is, the word was with God. That's fellowship you wrote in. That's statement number 2 in verse 1. And verse 2 combines those two. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. John and the Spirit now combine those into one statement in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. A combining of the first two statements of verse 1. John and the Spirit are combining eternality and fellowship repeated in verse 2. Obviously, the Spirit of God through JTA wants to repeat those two truths. He's eternal and the fellowship. Repeating that Christ and the Father were forever together in eternity past. 
Write that down under statement number four. This is a repeating of the truth that Christ and the Father were forever together in eternity past. And he wants us to be clear that Christ is not the Father. He was in the beginning with God the Father. But the statement also speaks to the fact that both he and God, in verse 2, have divine essence. So Christ, the he of verse 2, the word, is one in divine essence with the Father, but they are not the same person. That's orthodoxy. Christ is not the Father. He is one in divine essence, because verse 2 says the word was God. And yet they are separate persons. One divinity, two separate persons. That's Christian truth. They are one God. They are God. They are not the same person. That's why the Spirit has repeated this, to make sure we are clear on this. They are one God. They are God, and they are not the same person. He was in the beginning with God. One writer says, This fully divine word, Jesus, existing from all eternity as a distinct person, was enjoying loving fellowship with the Father forever in the past. Thus, the full deity of Christ is eternity and his distinct personal existence are confessed once more in verse 2. In order that heretics may be refuted and the church may be established in the faith and the love of God through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is going to a lot of very clear, accurate, grammatical construction in verses 1 and 2 using specific verbs, specific words, specific emphases in order that we get this right at the beginning. Jesus Christ is fully God. He did not come into existence as the eternal Logos at the Incarnation. His humanity did. So Logos in the Word represents his divinity. Jesus represents his human name. Jesus as a human did not always exist into the past. The eternal Word, his divine essence did. His divine personhood. Another person says this, the truth of Jesus Christ's deity and full equality with the Father is a non-negotiable element of the Christian faith. He continues on, he says, quote, in 2 John 10, John warned, quote, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the biblical teaching concerning Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. So you're to separate from anyone who claims to be a Christian or Christians or church organizations or missions that reject the deity of Jesus Christ. The writer continues, quote, Confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable because the biblical teaching regarding Christ's deity is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ is the eternally pre-existing word who enjoys full face-to-face -face communion and divinity with the Father and he himself is God. Extremely important. When that is messed with, we are in big trouble. Many years ago when we were at Maranatha Bible Conference grounds, which has gone heretical now, 
many years later, they've, they've allowed horrible things to go on in the board and up in uh, Muskegon and so forth. They've been allowing false teachers for many years now uh, to get into the pulpit. They had the head of the Trans World Radio get up when we were there. This is like 20, 30 years ago. He got up and he said, we need to get outside of our little boxes and stop thinking that Mormons aren't believers and don't believe in the same God we do. Transworld Radio, gone. Absolutely gone. Wolf in sheep's clothing. He declared himself a heretic at that point and that he was going to hell. Let me review for you something about heresy and masquerades. Three verses and then we'll go to communion. Matthew 7. A passage we're in many times, Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of the false teachers. Prophets refers to teachers. We know that from 1 Corinthians 14. Paul defines what a prophet is in the New Testament context. Beware of the false prophets, Matthew 7, 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There you go. So the president of Transworld Radio revealed his wolfishness. Wolves are heretics, okay? Wolves are false teachers, and wolves are going to hell. How do we know that? Look at Acts 20, second reference, Acts 20. We don't want to mess with the doctrine of Christ. And, first, and John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 has given us clear statements about his deity and yet also his individual personality. Acts chapter 20. Paul to the Ephesian church, verse 28, Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard, prosecco in the Greek, full attention with caution, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage what? Wolves. We just had that defined by Christ back in Matthew 7.15. A wolf is a going-to-hell false prophet and teacher. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells, men will arise. So not only do you get leadership and elders that come in and visit, start serving, and then attain to eldership, Paul is saying you'll have long-term, long-term moles, wolves, that grow up in a church, are apostates, and ascend into eldership. There's no way to stop it. He says this will happen. So the wolves there, referring to heretics, will come among, among you, not sparing the flock. And notice verse 30. And from among your own cells, like I just said, they will arise speaking perverse things, distorted, distorting the truth of the word of God. In order to apostatize the disciples, draw away as apostan, to drag away or turn away from truth. The goal of false teachers and heretics is to distort the truth to make other professed disciples apostatize. It assumes that heretics are apostates. This assumes it. If they're drawing away into apostasy, they are apostates doing it. And in Galatians, third and last reference before communion, Galatians 1, we find out that such people have no hope of salvation. There are two groups in the New Testament of professed believers who cannot be saved, heretics and apostates. Galatians chapter 1, Paul warns the Galatian series of fellowships, 
referring to a region where there are Bible-believing churches, Galatians. And in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting. That's, that's a horrible, horrible thing to do to, as a true believer to desert Christ. Amazed is an incredibly amazing word. It means to be astonished. It includes the idea of amazed in the Greek, includes the idea of uh, rebuke, irritation. He's ticked off right here. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. How do you do that as a true believer? You can't. Which is really not another. Only, those, only there are some who are disturbing you. These are the heretics. There are some who are disturbing you. Wanting to distort. There it is again, distortion. Just like we saw in the previous text, did we not? In Acts 20? Same idea, distort. To pervert, to corrupt, to turn away. Distorting the gospel of Christ. Now look what he says about these individuals. Are they backslidden believers? No. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you, we have preached to you, he is to be cursed. That is an apostolic command. It is not a wish. It is not just a statement of fact. It's present active imperative, accursed. He is to be accursed. It is an apostolic renunciation to hell of all heretics and apostates. He repeats it at the end of verse 9. Both are present active imperative. The word accursed is anathema. Literally, the word accursed means up to God. That's what the literal structure of the Greek word means. Up to God. What does that mean? The idea is drawn up to God, and the Hebrew of the Old Testament, referring to this cursing, brings in great insights. But to make it short here, brought up to God for judgment to hell is the idea. They have no hope to be anathematized by the apostle, therefore obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in verses 8 and 9, to be cursed and apostatized and anathematized by the Spirit of God. There's no hope for heretics. When somebody rejects the person and works of Jesus Christ and the gospel and preaches something that is false, they are heretics who cannot be saved. They are going to hell. This is not making mistakes with some translations that are difficult or not clear on certain doctrines. We're talking about no true believer can deny who Jesus Christ is according to the word of God. He is God. Jesus is a separate person from the Father and the Spirit. He is eternal and always was, is, and will be. And he is the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ. So the minute the head of Transworld Radio said that Mormons believe in the same Christ that we do, he, he, he cast himself publicly towards the place that he was going, which is hell. Those are the four statements. Next month, we'll look at letter B at the bottom of your note sheet. Letter A is the beginning. The word was God. Letter B, you can fill it in for next time. It'll be on the sheet as well. Letter B, the beginning. What is the beginning? Being, life, and light through the word. Being, B-E-I-N-G, being, life, and light. All things came into being through him, verse 3 says of John 1. And verse 4 says, in him was life, the second thing he wrote, and the life was the light of men, verse 4. Being, 
Life, light through the Word of God. Next October, or excuse me, next uh, November, the first Sunday of November, we will look at point number one at the bottom in verse three. Everything came into being through the Word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. If you haven't gotten the communion elements, you can do it while I'm praying. This is a time of thankfulness for who Jesus Christ is. He's fully God. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize you are fully God. And you are fully God in the flesh. You did not always have a human body, but you always do now. When you incarnated in John 1.15, you received a human body that was never to leave you. One day in heaven, we will see you, Jesus, in your resurrected human body. We will bow before you as God incarnate. Co-reigning on two thrones with the Father. We recognize, Father, that you are one God with Jesus and the Spirit. We recognize, Father, that you are not the eternal Logos, the Word. Father, you did not die on the cross for our sins. Father, you did not die on the cross for our sins. You sent the word to die for our sins. Holy Spirit, you are fully and equally God with the Father and the Son. We honor you as full deity, Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, you did not die on the cross for our sins. But you are one deity with the Father and the Son. And Spirit of God, when Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1, you came to earth to indwell permanently believers in the church. Jesus on earth, you were God among us. Spirit of God, you are not God among us. You are God in us. John, John 16 tells us, Lord, 
Spirit of God, that you came to dwell in us. We honor you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, you are omnipresent everywhere. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are one God who is omnipotent, infinite power. God, one God manifested in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are omniscient, all-knowing. This communion is to commemorate the body and blood of the eternal word who incarnated and died for us. Jesus, you died in your humanity, not your divinity. You have never ceased to be God. In Christ, we will never die eternally. We will live forever with you. Because of the resurrection, Jesus. We commemorate you now only as true believers. And believers who are fervently repenting of their sins, as Paul commands us. We honor you and partake of the bread. Father, you did not shed blood on the cross for our sins. Father, you did not shed blood on the cross for our sins. Holy Spirit, you did not shed blood on the cross for our sins. Only you, Jesus, died on the cross for our sins. We honor you for the shedding of blood where there is remission of sin, as Ephesians 1 says. If anyone here partakes of the cup and knows that they are apostates, they are bringing wrath on their heads. This cup, dear Father, is a commemoration of your Son only for true believers. We honor you as the eternal word. We honor you as the eternal Lord. We honor you as the eternal Savior.
We honor you as eternal God. We partake together. Father, you tell us so many things in your word about the Trinity. The more that we learn, however, the more we have questions. We admit we cannot understand how you can be one God, yet three persons. We simply by faith trust your word and submit to who you are. Your word is sufficient. You do not tell us everything about yourself in the word. You've told us what is sufficient to honor you and live for you. And we believe this by faith. Because your word is infallible and without error. That's why we believe. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We've worshipped you today through this Holy Spirit and through truth. Spirit of God, as we leave, now empower us to obey that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.